Matthew 6.13 is the last petition in the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to read it with me this morning. Please join me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That reference should be Matthew 6.13. And what it is telling us is that every single one of us is vulnerable to sin's power. We have an enemy, Satan. And he is very, very evil. Martin Luther was right when he said about Satan, as we sang, that he is armed with cruel hate. And temptation is one of the most powerful weapons in the arsenal that Satan has against us. Now think with me for a moment about temptation. Temptation is attractive, isn't it? We want it. We desire it. It appeals very much to us. Temptation is deceptive. It says to us, you can get away with this. You won't get caught. Nobody else will know. Temptation is also addictive. There is something that it whispers in our minds that says, I can stop. This won't get a hold on me. I will be able to control this. And then temptation, we know, is destructive. Our families, our reputation, our trust, our jobs, our ministries, all can be damaged by sin. Probably one of the greatest commentaries in all of the Bible on this petition in the Lord's Prayer is James 1, verses 13 through 18. And what it does is it teaches us how to overcome temptation. And what the Apostle James says to us is to overcome temptation, we must understand how it works. In fact, this morning, I want us to see a little principle from God's Word that I could put perhaps like this, to overcome temptation, we must look at it clearly in all of its facets. Let me just say that again. To overcome temptation, we must look at it clearly in all of its facets. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to James 1. Let me read for us verses 13 through 18, because here, perhaps nowhere else as clearly in all of Scripture are the facets of temptation, how it works and how we are to overcome it. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. The Word of God says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, this morning we come before you and we thank you that the Bible tells us the truth. It it reveals uh, the condition of our hearts and it shows us that even as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we have an enemy. And that enemy knows us better than we know ourselves And he knows the weaknesses in our hearts and exactly what is necessary to trip us up, to cause us to stumble, that our lives might be damaged and our witness for you harmed. And so we thank you that your word expands on what Jesus taught us to pray. Oh God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil one. And now today, thank you, Lord, for showing us how that happens. We love you today for it. Our hearts are open to your teaching. Our wills are captive to your plan for us. May you lead us forward in this time to know you and love you and to serve you more. We ask it now in Jesus' gracious name. Amen. James begins by telling us in this battle that we have with temptation that the first thing we have to do is we must look inside into our hearts to see the source of temptation. And he is very, very clear here that we cannot blame God. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, and therefore, he himself tempts no one. Now, you can see how this works, and you know how this works in your life. When we are frustrated, when we are hurting, when things are not working out in our lives, how easy it is for us to lash out against God. That's the case here. You'll notice this statement, let no one say, I am being tempted by God, is in quotation marks. It's as though James takes these words right out of somebody's mouth. By the way, are they coming from your mouth? Have these words ever come from my mouth? Now, here's the thought. James has been teaching us that God tests us. He allows very, very hard situations. And so we might reason, all right, if in this very difficult testing I sin, it is God's fault. For He is the one who put me here. Now James immediately reminds us that this is impossible because of God's nature. He tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. Uh, That is one word in the original language. 
It means untemptable. Untemptable. That is, there is nothing in the nature of God that responds to evil. Now we know from the Bible that God permits evil. He sees evil. He is present where evil is. But he is untouched by evil. Um, It is sort of like a sunbeam. A sunbeam shines down upon a garbage dump and comes in contact with all the filth in that dump. Yet the sunbeam remains unsoiled by the filth. That's the way God is. His nature is totally unsoiled by evil. So notice the conclusion that James drives us to. Yes, God tests us to make us stronger, but He Himself tempts no one. So we cannot blame God. Now, if we cannot blame God, then who can we blame? I don't know about you, but I want to blame somebody. All right? So I look at this, okay, I can't blame God, but I want to blame somebody else. And so, are you ready? Read this with me. We cannot blame anyone else. Notice verse 14. Each one is tempted by his own desire. Underline the little word own. The Bible teaches that the source of temptation is our own hearts. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.4 said, The soul that sins is the one who will die. So we are responsible Now, this is very, very hard for us to admit. Human nature wants to make excuses, doesn't it? In fact, in America, this blame-switching is so common, it has almost been elevated to the level of an indoor sport, hasn't it? Um, I have in my book a, a volume by Pastor John MacArthur called The Vanishing Conscience. And in that book, he calls it the victimization of America. Listen to what he says. Victimism has gained so much influence that as far as society is concerned, there is practically no such thing as sin anymore. Anyone can escape the responsibility for his or her wrongdoings simply by claiming the status of a victim. No one is responsible for what they do any more. And isn't our court system loaded with people who have this kind of mentality? Now, before this morning, we say amen. That's right. What about our excuses, right? What about our excuses? Have I ever said... It's the other person's fault. I couldn't help it. Everyone else is doing it. 
Don't raise your hand as we go through this, by the way. It was just a mistake. Nobody's perfect. I didn't know it was wrong. One person one time said to me, the devil got into me. I was pressured into it. Or how about this one? It's the way I was raised. You know what James is telling us? The first step in overcoming temptation is to take responsibility for it. That's the very first step. Now, there are many people who have wronged us, and that has damaged our lives in many significant ways. But whenever we do wrong, whenever we do wrong, we have no one to blame but us. It's not our parents' fault, it's not the fault of our spouse, it's not our friends' fault. And it's not the government's fault. James says sin is always our fault. Now understanding that, then we're ready for the next action. The next action, James says, is we must look ahead and we must see the stages of sin. We must see where temptation is taking us so that we know where we're going to end up if we follow this particular path. Now in verses 14 and 15, James does a wonderful thing for us. He shows us how it is that temptation works. This is the stages. Uh, Satan is so subtle, so effectively, he takes us on a path that will lead us ultimately where none of us want to go. Let's notice how this path begins. First of all, sinful desire is baited. We are lured. We are lured. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Now, those are fishing terms. Uh, They refer to luring out uh, of a hiding place with bait or to catch uh, a fish by baiting a hook. Uh, When I was a boy, my neighbor behind me was named Eddie, and and once in a while, Eddie and I would go uh, fishing together. He was a big, big fishing family. And I remember going down behind the cob plant to fish with him one day, and I baited my hook and threw it in, and sure enough, there was a bite on it, and I pulled in this nice little catfish. Well, it was a little small, and it wasn't exactly what I wanted, so I unhooked it, threw it back in. I baited my hook again, threw it back into the river. It wasn't very long. There was another bite. I reeled that thing in eagerly, It was the same catfish. I thought, you little rascal, you just couldn't resist, could you? That's the image here. Satan is a masker at dangling things in front of us that bait us and draw us away 
You may know that the word desire here is a neutral word. The Bible says that God gives us all good things to enjoy. God wants to fulfill our desires. But what Satan does is he baits our good desires with wrong fulfillments. So the desire for food is good. But in a land of plenty, we can gorge ourselves and overeat. The desire for sex is natural. But in a promiscuous world, we can indulge ourselves in premarital sex or in extramarital sex. The desire for achievement is a noble desire. But we can use dishonesty or selfish ambition to get ahead of others. And the desire for possessions is a good thing. God has blessed us here in America. But that desire can be turned into greed and selfishness to possess more than we need. I have a little piece of plastic in my wallet this morning. Probably most of you do as well. Do you realize I have a credit limit of, on this piece of plastic of thousands and thousands of dollars that I could have instantaneously? And I thought to myself, Satan is so smart. He's got the bait right in my back pocket. Right in my back pocket. You see, we don't have to go looking for these temptations. They're all around us. They come to us in the mail, they come to us on television, in the newspaper, at school, at work. They can be right in our back pocket. Look at the second stage. Sinful desire is conceived. We indulge. He says, then when desire has conceived, has conceived. Sin is like conception. We know the sperm and the egg must unite for life to be created. And so desire and temptation must unite for sin to occur. Now temptation itself is not sinful. It is when we indulge our desires in the wrong way that we sin. Martin Luther was perhaps one of the first to use this way of putting it. He said, temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. And that's the difference. It's temptation when it's flying over our heads. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we allow it to nest in our hair by indulging that we have sinned. And so the desire for food, if we consistently overeat, eating becomes gluttony. The desire for sex, if we find a a willing partner who is willing to do whatever we want, marital love, then becomes fornication or adultery. The desire for possessions, the American dream, if we take a second job for the sole purpose of buying more, 
And we then become workaholics. Making money to live becomes living to make money. An achievement, which is a good thing, if we cheat to get ahead, or we neglect the loved ones in our lives who deserve our time and attention, then living for others becomes living for me. And we have indulged. Now notice the third step. The third step is sinful desire is matured. We are controlled. He says desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown. Let me ask you today, when is sin fully grown? It's when it becomes a habit or a lifestyle. Did you know the Bible teaches us the consequences of sin is more sin? That's often the consequences of sin. You see, sin, when it is indulged, grows stronger, it takes over our lives, and it controls us. Next month will be the 40th class reunion of my high school class. I remember classmates who partied so much, they became alcoholics. And they could not give up drinking. I had a friend in Texas who was a window washer. He was often in homes by himself washing windows. He was so addicted to pornography that he said... If I'm ever in a home where there's a stash of pornography, invariably I find myself leafing through those magazines. It had become so addictive in his life. The only time that I hunted as a deer hunter was four years in high school. I went with a father and a son and another friend. And we had wonderful times deer hunting. I learned many years later the reason the father was taking us on those deer hunting trips was he was desperately trying to reconnect with his son who was going the wrong way because this man had been a workaholic father who had neglected his son. And his workaholism, in order to have a higher standard of living had brought tragedy to his relationship with his son. It was sin being fully grown in his life. Now you know where this process leads. We, we almost don't even have to ask James. But the way this concludes, a sinful desire is finished and we are destroyed. James says when sin is fully grown... It brings forth death. All of us know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's right. What James is saying is a lifestyle of sin can take us straight to hell. But sin can kill us in far more than one way. Sin can kill our spiritual vitality. It can kill the joy of our salvation. And it can kill our relationships. 
Let me ask you, what do all these people that I'm going to name here for just a moment have in common? Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Elvis Presley, John Belushi, Kurt Corbin, River Phoenix. You know what they all had in common? They were all intensely talented, but they did not control their lusts. And because they did not control their lusts, all of them died of overdoses. Exactly the pattern that James says temptation takes us. And do you know what James is doing here? What he is doing is he is comparing temptation to reproduction. He is comparing temptation to reproduction. And this morning, let me just share with you how this works. We all know how reproduction works. Reproduction begins with sex, which leads to conception, which leads to birth, then to growth, and ultimately to death. We see that here this morning, don't we? Sex leads to conception, conception leads to birth, birth leads to growth, and growth leads to death. We have two little roses here symbolizing this process that we've all rejoiced in this week. And now what James is telling us is this is the way temptation works. It begins with temptation. If we respond, it leads to baiting evil desire. Evil desire becomes sin. Sin, if consistently practiced, becomes habitual sin. And the end result is death. Let me ask you this question. When is it time to stop the process? When is it time to stop the process? Well, you know why contraceptives have been created. To stop conception. Because if there is no conception... There will be no birth, no growth, and no life that will ultimately die. So in the same way, the place to deal with temptation is at the point of evil desire. What the Bible is saying to us is that sin is internal. It comes from within. And since it comes from within, we must have help to deal with it internally. And only God is the one who can provide that help. Why does Martin Luther in that great song as we are singing about our battle with the evil one talk about the Father and then the Son who is Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, And then the Spirit and the gifts are ours. 
Because Luther is telling us that we do not have in ourselves the ability to stop evil desire. It is too powerful and too strong. We must have help. And that help comes from God. And that's why the third facet of dealing with temptation is this final one. We must look up to the solution to temptation. Now please follow me here this morning. The very first step in looking up to God is to trust in God's goodness. To trust in God's goodness. Sometimes as you look at verse 15 and then it's transitioned to verse 16, it's hard to see the connection. But once you see it, it makes perfect sense. Sin ultimately leads us to destruction and death. But God is completely different. God is a good God. And so notice what he says. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't don't be caught off guard about the way temptation works. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is this saying to us? God wants to give us good gifts. He never changes. There's never any variation in Him. He never is in the shadows, hiding. But He gives every good and perfect gift. He always wants what is best. and Therefore, we must trust Him. We must trust Him. Pastor John Piper has a wonderful statement about this. And I don't want us to miss it this morning. Listen to what he says. Sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. What an insight that is here. The power in all temptation is the sense that if I do this, though I know it is wrong, it will make me happier. And James says, no. No. We have to trust in God's goodness. Notice the second thing we must do. Secondly, we must make use of God's gifts. We must make use of God's gifts. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, you know what this is? This is a statement of God's gifts. You see, in verse 17, he said, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. What is those gifts? 
Well, here he says, is this is exactly what we have to do. We have to make use of God's gifts. Now, look at this plan. By the way, here is the statement by Pastor Piper. Sin gets its power by, by persuading me to believe that I would be more happy if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. What are God's gifts? Well, look what James says. This is God's love and His plan for every believer. Notice God's plan. His own will. This is what He planned for us. Is to take His Word, the Word of truth, and give us new life by bringing us forth. And what is the purpose for this? It is that we might have an abundant harvest, the first fruits. You all know that the first fruits is that first part of the harvest that is the pledge of more to come. This is God's plan for our lives. He brings us salvation through His Word, and then He nurtures that life to grow because we have been a part of His first fruits leading towards an abundant harvest. This is very much what Jesus said when He said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Now this is the good gifts that God has given. And we must make use of those gifts. Reflecting on this, Pastor Piper, again, has a wonderfully helpful comment. Look at what he says. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe God is more to be desired than life itself. It always comes down to a choice, doesn't it? Who do we trust? Who do we believe? 